Chapter 11 Stuff You'll Need You can't always get what you want, but if you try a bunch of stuff... One of the first things I did when trying to work on my faith and self, when trying to reach out and find and be found by God instead of just meeting culture, was I looked high and low for people I could connect to, really connect to, not just people to stand beside after meeting. People who weren't scared or angry if I actually thought things standing right there in front of them. People who were searching for more. People with questions. People with problems, essentially, with the system. People who could see our culture, the Matrix, rather than denying it even existed or had any effect on anything. And I found them, without even having the Internet. And it turned out that I really needed this kind of interaction, among other things. If, like me, you are going to try to find God, and that involves moving behind, beyond, or past your church culture, there are some things you will almost certainly need. I'm assuming here, and what a huge assumption it is, that you have a certain amount of knowledge of what the books of the Bible are and what they say, some familiarity with what the biblical Jesus said and what he did, something on the level of, say, what Wikipedia can provide. If you attended a Bible-focused church like mine for any length of time, one assumes you can more than keep up with Wikipedia as to Bible knowledge. If you don't have that background in simply what's in the Bible, you should start acquiring it for your own reasons, without anyone waving it in your face with a clear personal agenda. I would recommend involving no one else in this very personal process overly much. I really wouldn't recommend study guides, books, small groups, and Bible studies and courses. Not at first. People seem to spend more time talking about what they personally need the Bible to mean, or how they feel about it, rather than what the words say. The latter can be picked up relatively quickly by simply reading it, or even by reading summaries of it. It doesn't take very long to know what's basically in the Bible, and then you have that knowledge. People's personal agendas and feelings about the Bible, by contrast, are likely to be argued and gushed about forever. Well, I know what it sounds like, but what I think this verse actually means... I know when I read this passage, it takes me right back to a very important time in my life. You pretty much have to passively absorb whatever you're told. Remember, it's a book. You can read it. Or at least John and James and Romans. There are modern language translations. Nowadays, you can even have James Earl Jones read it to you in MP3 form, if you wish, on YouTube. Darth Vader, only you could be so bold. The Imperial Senate will not steal for this. When they hear you've attacked a diplomat... Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm a member of the Imperial Senate on a diplomatic mission to Alderaan. I gave her space to repent her fornication, and she repented not. Holding her is dangerous. Word of this gets out. It could generate sympathy for the rebellion in the Senate. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and then that commit adultery with her into great tribulation. She'll die before she'll tell you anything. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searches... Lord Vader, the battle station plans are not aboard this ship, and no transmissions were made. An escape pod was jettisoned during the fighting, but no life forms were aboard. To him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, 
as the vessels of the potter, should they be broken to shivers. Yes, sir. I strongly recommend taking in the Bible in chunks, not just in verses or chapters, in books or chunks of several chapters, all in the same day. Maybe do that once a week. It will take a time commitment. This is really the only way you will ever see past the traditional practice of slicing and dicing the Bible into tiny, out-of-context bits and then decorating one's own opinions with them as if they were nothing more than pink plastic rhinestones on an iPhone case. You can acquire a basic understanding of the Bible. In the same way, you can figure out the basics of Star Wars simply by watching the movies and poking around on Wikipedia a bit. Learning what the words in the Bible say is easy nowadays. Having any clue about what they might mean is another thing entirely. The value of the Bible to me today is that God the Son gets to me through it, reaches me, shines into me, inspires me. Not every single time I read it, but sometimes. I was raised to hit people with it, to stab them repeatedly with smashed bits of it, blind them with a handful of splinters of it tossed in their eyes if they weren't seeing things my way. And I now think that's embarrassing behavior and an embarrassing urge, need, or addiction to indulge, especially from a literal or even a digital platform or pulpit. Assuming you have a bit of Bible knowledge, you will need some other things too, if you're anything like me anyway. People who make you think. Further to the idea that you need people you can connect to and be yourself with, you'll need people who consistently make you think. Church people, other people, whoever. People who make you think things you haven't heard 6,000 times already. People who say things you haven't heard 7,000 times already. I found some. They were weird. They weren't popular. They didn't have it all figured out, and they didn't know how to behave or treat other people sometimes. But over time, networks sprang up. You'd meet one guy or girl who had an interesting take on some of the same stuff you yourself were working through, and you'd meet that person's friends and family, and maybe connect to some of them too. And they'd have friends, and some of them might connect to you. Back in the day, at first my mental database contained only that very in-depth indoctrination in the kinds of thoughts that were propagated in my church culture. So my 20s were about populating that database with all the other ideas I could hear from all manner of other people too, not necessarily to believe them so much as simply to know them, like having screwdrivers and wrenches to go with the hammer I was given by my birth culture. And for that, I needed to find people who'd be themselves around me and share stuff. I definitely needed people who weren't just parroting things they'd heard. Yes, of course, some people are superhumanly persuasive and tricky. And you could, in theory, get caught up in Scientology or Jehovah's Witnessness or whatever. But the thing is, if you are genuinely seeking God, that urge to seek Him was almost certainly put into you because He is seeking you first, and you'll find each other. So wade in. My disgruntled brethren associates and I had originally been used to relying 100% on our church system to do our social networking for us. And now that same system was trying to keep us from connecting to anyone at all, within or without. No help from them. So it was very new to have to do it all ourselves. And we had no internet. We weren't used to it at all. We were used to contenting ourselves with talking to whoever else showed up at church stuff. 
I cannot tally up the miles driven, the tanks of gas, the truly terrifying phone bills, the broken down cars, the odd, tedious little towns I spent time in just to try to have conversations that got me somewhere further down the road I was taking, spiritually speaking. I am an individualist and tend to believe that heavily organized group events are almost always entirely blah-de-blah-blah-blah, to use the technical term. I believe they are mostly workable only in theory and that they're not designed to meet the needs of thinkers or individualists. They're mostly just self-congratulatory enthusiasm building. I think they mainly spend time in patting themselves on the back for anything that isn't broken or which can be made to look worthwhile. Often, they're congratulating themselves on things that are almost entirely imaginary. But then, I am a cynical bastard. I can't think of a group that ever did much of anything in my formative years but stabbed me in the back for being myself so I try to avoid wasting time with groups of any kind, because I don't believe in them, ultimately. I think they inspire people to serve the status quo, mostly. I don't really trust them a bit, particularly to be challenging, to call me to task for the right stuff, and also support the stuff that ought to be supported. I don't see what they have to do with me connecting with God and his children. Most of his children who ever made me think a thing were people the system warned me to avoid. In fact, many Christians from a legalistic background, burned by a church, don't really feel safe going to yet another church. Sometimes the antidote to too much church, all up in your business all the time, simply isn't more church, not even a good one. Even when we recovering legalists deal with clumps of Christians who are in a different group than our own, we find that we were raised to view other groups with suspicion, and many of us have to overcome that and we have to give serious thought to how worth it that endeavor might be. Mickey says, I grew up in the exclusives and left when I was 18. For the next 30 years, yes, 30 years, I didn't go anywhere else because I had been brainwashed into thinking that nowhere else was good enough. Thankfully, God gave me the courage last year to attend a local evangelical church where I've rediscovered the wonderful blessing of a real non-judgmental Christian fellowship. Sometimes, trying to connect to other Christians outside the meeting can have a bumpy start. Luann was simply looking to connect with other Christians on Facebook and reports in confusion, I just got called a fag enabler by some guy from the Westboro Baptist Church. I don't even know what that means. He said that most Christians, especially Plymouth Brethren, don't go far enough in condemning homosexuality. He said just about the entire church, except for the Westboro Baptist Church, of course, not only accepts faggotry, but also condones it. He then said I was probably a low-life scum lesbian skank. He said that I deserve to be called that because I do not go far enough in condemning homosexuality. This guy seemed to be fixated on hating gays. Who are these people? I have never heard of them, and they sure don't sound like any Baptist I know. Luann is unlikely to learn about Christians outside her meeting being loving toward people from that particular church group. Anne writes, At first, I was uncomfortable with everyone from outside the meeting. Then I started to connect with people one at a time, and I was fine with that. I found that I could connect with anyone one-on-one. Now I just have a lot of anxiety in groups like parties. I do okay, but I'm stressed inside that I'll look dumb or reveal how clueless I am. For a while, I'd reveal that I was raised fundamentalist, perhaps as a defense. I'd like to not need to do that. I think that is less in my head as part of my identity. I still feel weird, like a weird outsider, though. Uh, Romantic relationships? 
Well, it's hard to put a religious status on an online dating profile. I can't stand most Christians, so putting Christian is a terrible idea. At the same time, I can't relate to people who have no religious background. I ended up marrying a lapsed Catholic, which has worked pretty well. He's conservative, lifestyle-wise, in the ways that I am, and thinks about spirituality and hates religion as much as I do. Ruth was luckier, or more blessed, as brethren people would put it. She had a grandmother who took her around to various churches even while Ruth was still committed to her brethren group and still being taught all the time that there was one right place and that we were that spiritual place. She says, I first attended church services that were not assembly meetings with my grandmother, who was a powerful non-brethren spiritual influence in my life. From her, I learned how paltry the differences between the denominations really are. She was a lifelong Methodist, but happily attended Universalist, Nazarene, and Baptist services. She was a real swinger, and I get that tendency to visit many flavors of church without discrimination and with open mind and heart from her. I inherited my skepticism regarding all that is hypocritical and insincere in Christianity from her, as well as her earnest enjoyment of morsels spoken from the pulpit that resonated deeply and helped strengthen and clarify daily walking with God. From her, I learned that all that really matters is our shared love for and faith in Jesus Christ. It was her level-headed point of view that in many ways let me see the meeting as it appeared to an outsider rather than an indoctrinated insider. All this to say that attending a church service with her was kind of a big deal. The first service I ever attended was an Easter service. What struck me the most was how wrong what I had always been taught about other Christian churches was. The folks really knew about Jesus, knew what their Bible said about what he taught and how he lived, died, and rose again. I was terrified and threatened by how much I loved attending non-meeting church services with my Grammy, by how at home and at ease I felt in those services and by how much I got out of them, how the beauty of the sanctuaries, the music, and the liturgy fed my beauty-hungry soul. Flash forward a few years, and I am stealing away, more out of curiosity and a willingness to enter his world, as he has been willing to enter mine, to attend church services with the man who would become my husband. I was even more terrified and threatened by how much I enjoyed these Methodist services. The simple messages, the fervent singing, the warmth and friendliness, the readings of a tremendous variety of scripture instead of the same passages every week, each passage prefaced not by endless types and shadows and interpretations, but instead a quick historical overview and a brief commentary, the freedom to laugh, relax, sing lustily, and generally enjoy being in church all did me good. I knew I wasn't supposed to love church, and that the Lord... I had been taught, wasn't in the midst and that they were on the wrong ground. But church became my guilty pleasure the way movies and concerts became others. I invented elaborate and watertight reasons Sunday mornings why I could not go to meeting so I could attend church services. I suffered agonies of guilt when I went back to the breaking of bread after partaking of communion with the Methodists. I knew that was against the rules big time. But I couldn't not break bread with the Methodists, later also the Catholics and Anglicans. 
my brothers and sisters. This was the beginning of the years-long struggle. How could I go on in a group of Christians, no matter how well-meaning, who refused the Lord's table to any true believer who chose not to affiliate exclusively with them? The other side of the question, yes, much as I love and enjoy, and I'm nourished, cleansed, and warmed by the church experiences I have described, I believe there are many forms of Christian worship that, because of my background, I will never be able to appreciate or feel comfortable enough to participate in. I have attended many services that gave me the willies, sat through a variety of contemporary or charismatic or Pentecostal services with my skin crawling. Many with my background simply switched only right groups and never really questioned the idea itself, simply what church it was that they believed to be the right one. Others lost their faith in God entirely. I lost my faith in Christians operating in groups. Well, people operating in groups, to be more accurate. Put more than two or three people in a room, I feel, and human nature will out eventually. So I went around having aggressively theological, who is God, existential, why am I, and psychological, is the inside of my head supposed to be like this, discussions, with anyone who would have them anywhere I could get to. This seems, in retrospect, to have been a very good move. Sure, compared to most folks, I know more Christian and ex-Christian people who have substance abuse problems or who are now dead, but it seems to have been the thing to do anyway. Ruth says, One of the things that surprised me most about people outside my birth culture, at least the people I am close to, is how utterly comfortable in their own skin they are, how they are not living in constant awareness of every word they speak or every move they make, how they are not in a straitjacket of constant fear and terror. Brethren will deny to the death that they are afraid, but afraid they are, and mesh in a spider web of fear. People outside my birth culture are able to relax and let their hair down, have a couple beers and say what's on their mind without being in a constant state of hypervigilance. You can differ with them, even violently disagree on topics and still be friends and still hang out and even find stimulation and enjoyment in those disagreements. Finally, people outside our birth culture tend to be so much more compassionate and to have a better grasp on the concept, weep with them that weep. They don't feel the need to point out that the Lord is speaking in every adverse circumstance in life. They can commiserate and say, yeah, man, that sucks. I feel ya. Instead of being Job's comforters. I couldn't agree more. And now there are computers. So meeting up with people you can relate to should be all easy and stuff, right? Even chatting online? Or maybe there was something to be said for eating with all kinds of different people and being in the same room as them. Computers aren't the same, but trying to stay connected with all of your peebs after you leave or get kicked out, and also connect to new Christians? The research of ex-brethren, psychologist Jill Mitten, says that along with memory problems, an inability to connect with other human beings is an all-too-common complaint of people raised in what she refers to as high-demand religious groups. That's a very polite way of saying cult, and her Taylor Hales experience definitely qualifies. Ruth writes, I recall having a gathering of meeting friends at my wedding, and how the ones who actually showed up and did not boycott the event, grouped together by themselves, did not mingle much with the other non-brethren guests, and were very stiff and standoffish in their body language. That was hard for me, 
as I wanted people to mingle and meet one another and have a good time. A number of meeting friends unfriended me on Facebook after I began to write posts about attending a Methodist church and celebrating Christmas. It's almost like, for many, Christianity is about choosing a side and fighting for it against the rest of the church. Like Christianity is supposed to be a 2,000-year-old civil war. Us against us. Outside Perspective This is important too, I believe. You need people who can give you an outside perspective on yourself and your world. People coming from somewhere utterly different than you are, but who you can, somehow, connect to. Also, books and movies that depict cultures like your own, and people like you, can be very helpful as well. Ones with an outside, objective, or even negative perspective, rather than just more of your culture selling itself to you who were raised in it. You're going to need to learn how to accept, care about, walk with, and love people who don't even agree with you about various things. Important things, even. You need to learn to agree to disagree and then keep right on hanging out. There was a guy named Curry who forgave me for not drinking with him, for not going and backing him up when he was getting into fights, for not being able or willing to go to concerts, hockey games, movies, high school dances, pubs, dance clubs, pool halls, strip clubs, or whatever with him. He was always trying to get me to go with him to stuff like that, and I always refused. But he always kept trying. He didn't stop being my friend. That made him unique. Why was he valuable? He gave me another perspective, a second point of view to ponder on everything. It wasn't like I was trading in my own views in favor of his. It was more like I was learning that my views weren't actually, in many cases, my own views at all, but had been handed to me in a kind of colorful church Happy Meal bag. Now, there's nothing wrong with Happy Meals. But if you're trying to learn to cook and budget your money, and you've never made yourself anything but have been living only on Happy Meals, that's too much of a good thing, no matter how many plastic toys of recent Hollywood blockbuster movies you now own helping remind you that there ever were such films even two months later. In my natural habitat, just like with all kids, be they Pennsylvania Amish or kids growing up in a hovel in Baghdad or in Chicago with a mother with mental illness, everything was normal because it always just is. Whatever your surroundings are to you, they are normal. For me, Curry was a normality check because he had very strong feelings of his own about what was and was not normal from a vantage point all the way across the road from our house. Sure, he had stuff in his home life, but he saw his home life as very, very normal. And so when we hung out, he was kind of like an odd version of Jiminy Cricket, letting me know what seemed weird to him, reminding me that there were other ways to react and think, feel, and live besides the only way I'd ever seen. He also pointed out when I was being a Pharisee prick, which was often... All of this challenged me as to what I was able to view as normal. It made me have to grow up and learn to accept and identify with a slightly broader range of humanity, and one with much higher standards for courage, honesty, integrity, openness, faithfulness, honor, frankness, and decency. I didn't know then how much I needed a non-brethren friend. If I had grown up Amish, there would no doubt have simply been a real lack of people in my life who weren't Amish. If I had been growing up in Baghdad, I might never have met and connected with somebody who wasn't Iraqi and wasn't dealing with the same heaps of rubble as I dealt with daily in my perfectly normal, crumbling, bombed-out neighborhood. But I had curry. He saw how all brethren men had short hair, and most brethren women had very long hair. 
He saw how at church events the men all had trousers and the women all had dresses or skirts instead. He saw all the preppy clothes and no other styles. He saw a room full of people all carefully rocking the same basic business casual style. Curry felt the conservative uniformity in style was odd. It wasn't like that at school. At school there was diversity. He saw how that not some but all brethren women put on head coverings, including what looked like lace doilies, Spanish head coverings easily carried in one's purse called mantillas, wholly inedible it turns out even with salsa, when they did anything religious, including singing hymns or listening to Bible lectures. He told me that most churches did not do this. How unscriptural, I thought. Don't they read their Bibles, I wondered. Curry watched Star Trek, Airwolf, Mad Max, Rocky, The A-Team, and a myriad Chuck Norris and Steven Seagal movies, and felt that they were very, very good, and that everyone should watch them. This was a nice counterpoint to what was gospel in my surroundings, that these things were very, very dangerous, corrupting temptations which taught dark lessons to unsuspecting youth. There certainly was no shortage of church people thinking I was weird if I differed in any way from what was usual for people my age there. This meant there was a well-intentioned, genuinely worried pressure that never let up, pushing me to conform to the norm. But with Curry around, suddenly there was pressure pushing me in the opposite direction, too, quite often. This kind of thing often has the effect of allowing you to balance. Pressure from one direction is something you can get used to and not even notice in terms of how it's making you walk around. Add pressure from another direction, which pressure hasn't been negated by your being overly homeschooled and or forbidden outright to play with non-church kids, and suddenly you have more to think about, and there's more than one opinion on what's normal. If there's only ever one opinion, it's hard to understand the possibility of a second one. If there are two, though, adding a third is much, much easier. Having curry at church youth group functions was especially valuable in terms of getting a second opinion on what and who was what. Suddenly it was easier to see something or someone from two sides instead of just the one, black and white. The fact that curry lived right across the road, that mom had babysat him and his little brother Doug, and that he'd come out to brethren youth stuff from time to time, meant that though my school acquaintances were largely completely lost to me once they started going to parties and dances... Curry, at least, was always over there, just across the way. He wasn't a meeting kid, so my dad didn't want me hanging out with him. But it happened anyway. My dad didn't want me hanging out with the meeting kids either. He wanted me piling wood, picking rocks out of fields, going to meeting and reading my Bible. And nothing much else. The fact that Curry now lives across North America rather than across the road, and that we've never been very similar and have grown out of who we were when we were able to connect, means we don't really play much of a role in each other's lives anymore. I miss him, though. But I thank God for making sure there was curry in my life, helping me to see me, helping me to see our meeting culture, helping me to see options. More than one kind of person. So, you need to connect to people who aren't constrained by the narrow cultural limits you were bound up in. You need more than one kind of person to talk to. The thing about a birth culture is that it really more or less tells you, in advance, what the world and the people in it are going to be like, what to expect, how it all works, and what to do. Mine taught me that the world hated Jesus and would hate me too for being his follower, and that it was wholly evil and mostly run by unprincipled sociopaths snorting coke off hookers, drunk driving expensive cars, and getting away with it because they were rich. The latter I still rather believe. 
The former, I needed to learn that there are all kinds of different people in the world. Many of them were quite accepting of me and my beliefs. In fact, they respected someone seeking answers in a way they didn't respect someone trying to give everyone his own answers. And very few of them seemed to hate Jesus. Many of them thought church Christians were pretty ridiculous and annoying, though, and few of them were ever in any danger of confusing Jesus Christ and Christians. What this said to me was that these unchurched folk drew a sharp distinction between Jesus of Nazareth on the one hand, warm, accepting, attentive, and helpful, and church-going Christians, smug, uptight, shrilly, unconvincing, and a bit creepy, on the other. Church-going Christians have challenged me on the idea that, to your average person, they seem a bit creepy, like Scientologists, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Mormons seem to us. Well, ask some average, unchurched people you trust if you don't believe me. That's where I got this quote from. Unchurched people. They don't hate Jesus, though. They just think we're creepy. Increasingly, while talking to them, I have started to see what they're seeing and draw the line the same way. And they're our customers. Am I going to act like Jesus and the apostles would act? Or like church Christians insist we act instead? One of the sacrifices you have to make if you're going to connect to people outside your culture, beyond your comfort zone, is you have to at least consider that they might be right about some things and maybe even have good points to share. And you have to be open to the idea that you might have missed a thing here or there, and that maybe everyone you know has too, even the people in power, even the ones writing books and teaching people. And it's about understanding and connecting to people anyway. I had to learn to not always need to be better, and not always need to know more. I had to learn to be just another guy. So in my life, my meeting culture wasn't just one thing, but rather it was so much the pod my lily pad grew in that for me it was my whole world. This is why adding curry into that recipe and trying to understand him and become understandable by him was an important thing to try to achieve. Then later... To start building that network of other seeking brethren people and their non-brethren friends and relatives added a new level of complexity to that. How to understand, really understand, rather than simply dismiss and boast, I do not understand how anyone can, and be understood in that kind of milieu, to try to understand and be understood by regular folk in the world around. I know a beautiful young woman who places a great deal of stock in regular people, those who think they're nothing special, the kind of folk other people tend to overlook. She photographs them and puts them online to give them a moment in the spotlight, and she listens to what matters to them, and she quotes them. Amen to all of that, girl. You're being Jesus to these folks, not just telling them what he means to you. I was used to sitting comfortably in the position of being part of a group of people who all knew a whole lot of things for certain, and were waiting for people to either agree with or ask us to impart that knowledge. Simple matters such as where the earth came from and its exact age in hours, where people came from, why we're on earth anyway, who and what and that God is and how much he weighs and what he wants us to wear on Sundays. I eventually realized, as a church Christian, that I was always waiting for some theoretical worldling to come ask me to graciously impart some of my ancient spiritual knowledge. I knew that some of our number simply went up to regular folk unannounced and offered to impart said knowledge. They liked doing this and talked about it constantly, but didn't have much success to report, it didn't seem to me. Something always seemed to be missing in their interactions with regular folks. What could it have been? What did Jesus have that they lacked? Connection, understanding, 
genuine conversation in which both people get to maybe have points. The Christians who let the worldly talk had far more success than the ones who didn't, because a connection is made when it's a conversation rather than a lecture. Even when Jesus disagreed with people, as he almost always did, they always knew he'd heard them. He got them to an uncomfortable degree. But we suck at that, letting people know we heard them. Suck at that. Me especially. People who are different from me. People who aren't perfect either and don't try to pretend. Anne writes, It was good to be friends with smokers, people who'd done drugs, had sex, had a lot of experiences that were considered bad, and realized that they were just people. These friends did a lot for me. Being accepted by my husband did a lot for me, too. He accepted me as a perfectly good human, even though I feel like an outsider. He taught me it's okay to be different and not to fit in. Jesus is depicted throughout the Gospels going around, understanding people, and saying and doing things that, frankly, aren't as easy to describe as much of what we tend to think of as evangelism or outreach. He would say genuinely understanding thought-provoking things that weren't done up like infomercials. What I was used to seeing instead was Christian people smiling sadly over how sad it truly was that people just didn't understand about Jesus and didn't love him like we clearly did. I don't understand how they can just not love Jesus, one Christian would smilingly say to another. Wow, I don't understand either, a second sad evangelical would grin sadly. How sad, they would happily agree. Sad is often Christianese for f***ing stupid. Not understanding doesn't make you right about anything. It's nothing to brag about. It doesn't matter if the issue is world hunger, the existence of God, same-sex marriage, abortion, or the environment. If you're the guy saying, I just don't understand, you're admitting you've got some work to do. We don't need to agree, but it helps to understand deeply not only what is thought, but the appeal and ramifications of that belief. This is harder than merely dismissing it. Because we need to understand if we're to connect or make a difference. Understanding someone or an idea you don't agree with is essential to being Jesus-like, to being effective in any way, actually. Otherwise, you're just someone who doesn't understand. And there's no shortage of those in the world, and they're hardly part of a solution of any kind. Not understanding others is not a noble goal. It shouldn't be a prerequisite to leadership. So for me, a vital part of coming to terms with being human and reaching after God was to learn that there were all different kinds of people living through all different kinds of things, and to start to maybe understand them a bit. Again, understand does not always mean agree or even sympathize with. I mean, how was I going to learn to understand God if I couldn't understand curry? A big part of understanding what it means for there to be a God is to get more of a clue as to what it means to be a normal human and how that's different from being God, and what the two have to do with each other. Learning what kind of world existed beyond my lily pad required as many of these other kinds of people in it as possible, even if only for one brief encounter each. I still remember the first time I had an hour-long conversation with a Christian who didn't believe in the rapture. I couldn't believe he was for real at first. But eventually, I saw that he was, had actually read the Bible, actually didn't believe in the rapture. It was scary for me, because he didn't seem confused. He seemed well-informed. He seemed like a Christian, and he seemed to have quite an understanding of what the Bible said. He understood why I believe in the rapture, and what my belief system was all about, and why I might believe it. He also understood why he, and Christians he knew, didn't. 
he saw how my belief in the rapture means I didn't care too much about the environment or the future of our country, while his group's emphasis on the Christian's role in presenting the kingdom of heaven on earth made him work to better those two things. He could see my culture and his, and he could see me as a representative part, a logical outcome of mine, and he of his. I, it turned out, didn't really understand any of that. I was utterly outclassed. This wasn't proof that I was wrong. It was proof that I was very green and inexperienced and didn't understand much of anything, because that's a completely different thing from being wrong. And it's worse. At first, I found it scary to talk to someone who disagreed with me and was better informed. I had the stupid idea that if this guy could beat me in an argument, my beliefs would simply change while talking to him. After a few conversations, I found that I didn't need to worry about this. The programming held. But the more conversations I had with more people, the more ideas and people I understood a bit, whether I agreed with them or not. I also used books for the same purpose. My dad already had a dusty shelf groaning beneath the weight of books written by people who thought what we thought. Well, we said we still thought what they thought in the 1880s, but mostly we didn't know or understand a lot of what they'd believed, and it also seemed like their beliefs changed throughout their lives anyway, so that made things extra complicated. Things tend to slide Pharisee given enough time. It's human. Remember Henry's pamphlet contrasting those old books with our new traditions. So I needed to read stuff Dad didn't or wouldn't try to read. That wasn't hard. My dad pretty much wouldn't touch a book by anyone who hadn't actually helped start the Plymouth Brethren. C.S. Lewis was very interesting. I didn't always agree with him, and that was okay. Ditto Chuck Swindle's The Grace Awakening, also a maverick called Martin Zender, who self-published books about not believing in the usual conceptions of hell, and more shockingly, about not necessarily going to church. And N.T. Wright, who was the Bishop of Durham and was touted as the new C.S. Lewis, We'd all been raised that pastors and ministers were power-mad, ecclesiastical dictators who quenched the Holy Spirit by standing alone in the spotlight, sometimes quite literally. John Nelson Darby wrote that the notion of clergy was a sin against God the Holy Spirit. So a bishop of the Anglican Church? Tom Wright made me think about all kinds of things. For one thing, what would first-century Jews have heard when Jesus was standing there talking to them, as opposed to what we think and feel when we read the words of Jesus in the Bible, after having been carefully coached as to what it's going to say, and more importantly, which of our doctrines it supports? I also read books and watched documentaries about cults, and watched movies that seemed connected to that. My group was not quite a cult until you head a bit right of us where you'll find several groups of brethren presided over globally by one man who gets all the say and controls all the money. But still, I seemed to need to learn about getting my head free. I watched The Village. I read 1984 and Animal Farm again, watched documentaries about people leaving the Amish, saw Going Clear about Scientology, stuff like that. Louisa says... The movie, The Giver, brought a lot of my exit back to me. I know what she means. It's odd, actually, how many books of this type there are. Fiction, of course. The story's hard to tell as a factual thing. Books by actual ex-cult members were disappointing. They sounded like blank, lost, sheep-like people before, during, and after the cult experience, having learned very little in most of the books I read. I had no personality, so I joined a cult which gave me one. After a while, someone pulled me out of it. I still miss having a personality to this day. 
In a nutshell, one of my first huge little baby steps taken in trying to understand God better was that I realized that I didn't understand very much. Gradually, I grasped that the belief package I'd been handed didn't seem to go far enough, and I needed to start trying to understand everyone around instead of boasting, I don't understand that guy. Because that's a whole lot of what philios or brotherly love is, really, feeling someone else's struggles. C.S. Lewis breaks down four Greek words translated love in our Bibles in his book, The Four Loves. Philios is one of those. I've been trying with uncertain success to get over my culture's dysfunctional approach to connecting with other Christians, because I think it's insane. We're here to help, understand, and connect, to build enough relationships so we've earned the right to be blunt if necessary. That's what loving one another looks like. One of my main ways of trying to connect to another Christian is to ask if there's something we can privately pray for in each other's lives. A money concern, a health problem, a social thing, anything at all. This is a way of seeing if there is sufficient trust to share anything personal whatsoever and see if it is possible for the two of us to share goals in any way or even agree upon a single thing that would be good and ask God about it. You would be amazed at how many Christians have found it too intimate or personal to trust me with something that's a struggle for them or something that troubles them or, worst of all, something they really want. But I know that if I'm going to really connect to Christian people outside church affiliation, I might just need to get them to open up and share what's hard for them and pray for that. So I do that very thing. Connecting with one other person can be hard, but I can do it from time to time with some people. And then try to connect with two people who don't know each other and see if all three of you get along and want to talk about the Bible or anything without actually forming a church. That's a whole new level of complicated. And getting much worth out of anything much bigger than two or three, including me, seems to generally elude me. Is Matthew 18.20 a size limit? I'm only sort of kidding. Boundaries This is important to people like us, too. You'll need to establish boundaries to keep people from running roughshod over stuff in your life that matters to you, but which they won't fully understand. I had to do this on my own long before I learned about Dr. Henry Cloud or Dr. John Townsend, who have since made a career together of writing books for Christians. Their books almost all revolve around the importance of boundaries. They rightly point out that a religious culture often means growing up without proper boundaries in place. Louisa writes, More than most around me, I was extreme in not having personal boundaries, had never heard of the term or concept, and I was extreme in living under the fear of man. That is partly why when I did suddenly shock everyone by my leaving the meeting, many could not believe that I had forsaken it all, as I hadn't been anything but compliant. My own life situation when I was in my early 20s was not terribly unusual, especially for a meeting guy, but it needed work before it became workable. I'd been away to university, which meant most years being dropped off in Ottawa each Sunday evening, 45 minutes drive from my parents' house, doing school during the week, and getting picked up at the end of the week to go home for the weekend and attend Lord's Day morning meeting with them. Apart from my last year at university, I was living at home on weekends and theoretically going out to the meetings then too, with sporadic attendance at the Ottawa Tuesday and Friday night meetings. I spent May through August living entirely at my parents' house. 
So by 21, I'd graduated with a bachelor's degree in English literature, then held down full-time but not very lucrative employment the whole while, had managed to score a crappy car, and yet was still living and keeping all my stuff in my little bedroom just like when I was a teenager. I put my university stuff, the little bar fridge, microwave, and toaster oven, in my bedroom at my parents' to try to have boundaries up to try to feel like I was living the life of an adult. But really, I still struggled with having family running roughshod over my privacy and agency in planning out the course of my life. What I figured out on my own by having a look at what was dysfunctional about my life, Cloud and Townsend clarified for me much later. Many people, and Christians are no exception, have too many people who are all up in their stuff all the time. People who repeatedly intrude, and with whom you've taken no real steps to define what's okay and what's not okay. Cloud and Townsend say all that's just stuff you need to take the time to clearly work out between you, if you want a workable life and any lasting relationship with said people. Because you need room to breathe and space to be yourself. You don't need your elbow jostled while working out your future. You don't need to constantly have the expectations and assumptions of others shoved in your face while you're trying to figure out how to be an adult either. If you're an adult, whether you're in your childhood room or university dorm, that needs to be your place. It's not your place if people, for instance siblings or parents or church people, anyone, are going to negatively comment if you put up a Pink Floyd poster on your wall, if they want you to put up Bible texts or tear off daily scripture calendars in your apartment, or if they're upset that there is a wine bottle or member of the opposite sex in there. It's not your place if they are going to comment on who visits, on your phone calls, church attendance, finances, or sleeping habits. But many adults have this kind of living situation, especially nowadays not really being treated like adults. Boundaries not really up to keep that stuff out of the life in question. Old habits die hard. My parents believed they should treat me like an adult until I found my own apartment, which I did in my 23rd year, not a moment too soon, but they had trouble with old habits. Old habits like asking me where I was going every time I left the house, worrying I might be seen by a meeting person if I went to the movie theater. Old habits like always asking in advance two or three times if I'd be going out to whatever church event was on, asking me as soon as they got home afterward why I didn't show up if I hadn't, obligating me to meal engagements, visits, and social duties of various kinds, often without asking me first. When you live with or even depend financially upon your parents into adulthood, in most ways you have no real privacy. So, some has to be contrived. It reminds me of a character from a 70s TV show called WKRP in Cincinnati. On WKRP, Les Nessman is a small radio station's newsman. Les feels like he deserves his own office, but he only has a desk in the big room with everyone else's. So what Les does is he takes masking tape and puts lines on the floor around his desk to mark where his walls would be had he a real office of his own. And he insists that everyone who walks up to talk to him pretend to knock on his door so he can in turn pretend to open it if and when he wants to talk to them. But really, they're just standing right beside him in the same room anyway. It was almost like that with my parents. They did their best, but they had no real idea about not needing to know everything, not speaking for me to others, and about giving me space to make my own mistakes because I wasn't being given any space to make any mistakes, despite that being precisely what a young adult needs. 
What I had to do was gently wean them from this. I had to explain that though they felt they were trying to correct my behavior to be more appropriate, the beam in their own eye was seen in their treating me as if I was still a child when I wasn't, in their continual trying to point out that they felt I had a speck in my eye. It didn't matter if their suggestions were right or wrong, so much as it mattered that they kept endlessly giving suggestions. It mattered that I was being kept from living my own life. Repeated gentle reminders to them were required, but they paid off eventually, somewhat. Also, a bit of joking worked. So one time, when my mother asked me where I was going when I was leaving the house after 10 p.m., I just said, well, I thought I'd stop at an opium den followed by a Vietnamese brothel and then perhaps later taken a cockfight on the way to the track. She laughed, and my repeatedly doing this really helped her remember to stop this kind of thing. She knew that the next time or two she asked me, she might well get a ridiculous answer. And she did. My answers got ever more esoteric. For many of us, we needed to get to a certain point. Inside ourselves, we needed to move beyond the fear and suspicion about living our own lives that our parents seemed to be unthinkingly pouring into us. It needed to be something we no longer bought into ourselves anymore. We had to leave fear behind. When discussing the correspondence she gets from her parents now that she's no longer attending a brethren church anymore, Anne notes that it's always loaded with dread and dire predictions, with talk about how our feelings often lead us astray and take us away from God's special path of blessing for us, about being humble and confessing all the recent choices she's, the us goes away at this point, made that clearly aren't according to God's will, and about returning to the fold. I know several people who get parental letters or emails of this kind every month or so into middle age, pleading with them to return to the Lord, to give up their wayward straying, their independent youthful spirit. Anne notes the number of times Satan and led astray and danger seem to crop up in every email. She says, Sometimes I think it's less their religion than a predisposition to anxiety and depression that is cloaked in religious terms. I know what she means. The more my parents age, the more fear I hear, the more focus on news stories about horrible accidents and tragic obituaries and gossip about people's kids or grandkids messing up their lives. They trusted to our culture to feed them spiritually, to look after their kids and keep them in the faith, to provide spouses for us and care for our children and plan stuff to do socially for all of us. And they seem shocked and confused that very little of this worked out. They're senior citizens now, and they've been sold very short in that whole meeting deal. In fact, they've been cut loose entirely, and that shakes them to their very foundations. So dire predictions and fear seem to be the order of the day, and my sister and I find we have to ignore, shut down, or laugh off a great deal of that stuff. Emergency Boundaries Sometimes, though, boundaries need to be put up against things that are not so much just annoying as they are downright scary. I had to phone the police for my family to get a brethren guy to stop stalking my sister back in the day. Because he was a meeting guy, my father simply couldn't find it in himself to do something like that. What a mess it would make at meeting. It was rude. It was so awkward. The police, however, felt that what the guy was doing was illegal, especially when he broke one of their noses. When the guy phoned and I asked him once again to stop phoning my sister who was terrified and traumatized, my aunt told me I hadn't been nice to him in that conversation. And Christians are always nice, right? Like Jesus always was. So I should have been nice to him, she decided. 
There was no thought that my aunt eavesdropping at my house on my private phone conversation wasn't nace either. I was doing what I needed to in order to protect my family. She was placing fear of social awkwardness at meeting above what eventually became a police matter, with repeated police involvement and lifetime confinement of the young man to various psychiatric institutions eventually becoming necessary. I'm an adult now. Getting my own place made a huge difference, but then there was the matter of people at meeting. Whenever my hair started to get slightly long, certainly not to my shoulders or anything, they would put the shame and fear into me. In my mid-twenties, I would get busy with my job and not get a haircut for a couple of months, and would feel an odd mix of delight in how long my hair was getting and fear of getting into trouble for such a bold, rebellious move with people like the various Mrs. Hayhoes. Mostly, the longer my hair got, the more was said behind my back and the less said to me about anything at all. There were pointed stares. What happened was every time I buckled and got a haircut, people at church would go out of their way to praise this nice, appropriate Christian behavior, like that was their job. So nice to see you out at meeting, all trimmed up nice and neat, a Mrs. Hayhoe would say, pointing out that she was relieved that at least I wasn't missing meeting that day, nor was I shaggy-looking any more, which would certainly have turned lost souls away from the Lord, it being a bad testimony and all. Zoink, Scoob! Like, shagginess sure was of the devil And this stuff didn't stop in the 90s, nor is it only seen in closed or exclusive groups like the one I grew up in. Today I got a message from Ray, who goes to an open brethren group in America. Now, at the time of writing, the really trendy thing for young guys is a very bushy beard and hair that is shaved all around but very long on top, flopped over to one side or straight back. This decade's mullet in waiting. Now, Ray is rocking the heck out of that style this month. His hair on the top of his head is so long it can flop right down nearly to his chin, but it's shaved all around. Normally, it is flopped back or to one side, with a bushy beard giving the air of a fashionably startled rooster eating a badger. Today, at Breaking of Bread, Ray was spending a lot of time bent over redirecting and chasing after his burgeoning brood of toddlers. One could say that Ray's quiver was full, only he's clearly hitting repeated bullseyes with his arrows. But today, Ray's hair kept flopping over his eyes as he leaned forward and tended the kids. So he got a hair elastic he uses to control his little daughter's brethren correct long blonde locks and man-bunned up, made a wee samurai topknot. Well, open brethren are not bang. Ray got spoken to, immediately, and decided to message me about it. People do this a lot. It's the same old thing. Of course, Ray can do whatever he wants with his hair if he likes. Open brethren aren't under law, of course. No one's going to turn him away from the table just for his hair, probably. But we all know what a hairstyle like that makes him, don't we? And what it shows about his attitude as to being a good example to draw others to Christ. So that's how that works. If Ray wants to speak up in Bible discussions, some people, as mature as high school girls, apparently, aren't going to want to sit near him or give eye contact or talk to him or acknowledge his comments. They're very down with the fruit of the Spirit like that, those senior citizens. And the onus is on him, rather than on them, to explain exactly why he's causing trouble, offending people, indulging himself at the expense of others, selfishly failing to show the spirit of Jesus or the, the fruit of the spirit. Fashion will be no excuse for a lack of submission. Now, the interesting thing about Ray is he's not simply a guy who wants to do whatever the heck he wants because he wants to and be left alone. 
What he said to me in the message is that what he wants from his assembly is to be held accountable to them more than he is, but for things more important than mere hairstyle, for deeper things, for spiritual things, and that's not happening. Ray wants to have his soul and his spiritual life kept watch on by spiritual people. He wants to be inspired to delve deeper into Christianity and the Bible, wants to be challenged to be less shallow, to know more. He wants to grow, not just be told his trendy hipster hair is offending the old farts. But he can't get the farts in question to take an interest in anything deeper than his due. They're just not looking past it at all. Their spirituality just doesn't go beyond splitting hairs. Disrespecters of persons to a man, or so they are coming off to Ray. Meanwhile, he's got to move in the same circles weekly as this guy who just warned him people might be offended. Ray is tempted to shave it off along with the beard, as he put it, whitewashing the walls along with my Pharisee brother. His other choice is taking that pariah place, SH disturber, offense causer, bad testimony, worldly, stench in God's nostrils, someone apt to lead the youth astray. Facebook now indicates that the hair all went and the beard stayed. Sometimes the only way to make this kind of inappropriate meddling stop is to tackle it head on. A juvenile approach is to purposely do whatever you're not supposed to in such a way as to make the point that if you want to do that, you will. One guy I knew had been worrying everyone by not attending Lord's Day morning for weeks. He used to do adolescent things like thank concerned folks for giving him unwanted tear-off Bible calendars, scripture word searches, and gospel pamphlets, but in his own very special way. What he did was he used them as rolling papers to smoke pot with. I know next to nothing of pot smoking, but I'm made to understand that using this kind of paper would be very hard on the throat and would only be done to make a point with. A very big, unsubtle point. But this answered the question of if he dutifully enjoyed the Sunday school scripture searches in question, because he really had enjoyed the heck out of them. Very encouraging they were too, he said, deeply edifying and all. In fact, he was having trouble keeping up given how many pieces of paper a Mr. Hayhoe was sending him. Because the Mr. Hayhoe wouldn't stop sending these scripture searches for decades. Enclosed new ones in letters reminding you that you hadn't completed the old ones and therefore he worried about your soul's final destination. Said all too many young people who didn't complete their scripture searches had ended up in a lost eternity in his experience. Begged you to reconsider, wouldn't stop sending them. Even if you repeatedly wrote and asked him to stop, he would not. No matter where you moved, he got your address. Thought that repeatedly sending you these papers might bring the straying sheep back into the fold. So I guess this guy's using them to roll joints with. Funny, but not very mature. Hard to respect in someone wanting to be treated like a grown-up. The same could equally be said about the pot smoker's behavior, too. How to build your backyard fence. Words are powerful. Broaching subjects is powerful. A more adult approach than carefully chosen defiant behavior is simply to allude in any way to the behavior you want to put up a boundary against. Refer to the elephant in the room in a quiet, dignified manner. Just calmly name drop what you're doing while thinking about something else as if to hint that it's simply a fact now. You're a young woman, and you've gotten a nose ring. You know that there is supposed to be awkward silence about it, unless someone wants to give you an awkward lecture. So just say something vaguely connected to it. I bought this Bible the same day I got my nose pierced. 
This is almost an invitation to discuss the matter openly or to let it go. It establishes that you aren't ashamed nor afraid to discuss it, but makes it clear that you would be discussing it as an equal and not ashamed child. Because these things are unspoken about mostly. The rules are unwritten and unmentioned, and the people reinforcing them and socially punishing rule breakers get a whole lot of mileage out of you know. So make it clear you don't know. You don't know any of that stuff anymore at all. It increasingly sounds like stuff that superficial, superstitious folk are making up as they go along. Notice how the people who intrusively lecture others often feel safer being very careful to not finish a lot of their sentences. Well, piercings are a bit... I'm not sure a Christian should really... Don't you think maybe it would be better if... It's very hard to respond to what is only the first half of a sentence and one that's carefully missing the crucial bit. But lecture mongers do this. They're able to thereby remind you of what's expected of you without fully putting into words what exactly that is, nor what's going to be done to you socially if you don't comply. Because things that are put into actual words can be responded to. Words pin you down and make you commit to a criticism. Finished sentences mean a complete thought has been expressed, and one can then have a long, hard look at that thought, which is something most cultures don't really want to bother with. They just want conformity, no discussion, no deconstruction. But many Christians seemingly want everyone to follow an unexamined path without justifying doing so. They expect you to need to satisfy their expectations simply because they expect you to need to satisfy their expectations. And they aren't willing to even understand their expectations themselves, let alone explain them. Intrusive people will usually only feel comfortable intruding if the act of intruding isn't going to be revealed to be inappropriate. If you want to make them less comfortable intruding, an easy tactic is to simply put into words exactly what it is they're doing. It's important to word this as neutrally as possible, but put into the air in words this thing that they're doing in a way they can't miss. This could be done in a number of ways. You could word it as a command or request. Please stop keeping track of and commenting on my church attendance. I don't like it, and I don't feel it's appropriate. Or you could word it as a question. Do you feel it's appropriate and helpful for you to keep track of and comment on my church attendance? How exactly do you feel it is helping? You can even word it as a neutral observation. Hmm, you sure do keep track of and comment on my church attendance a lot. And you can go preemptive. As a person makes her way over, you can say, Going to be commenting on my church attendance today, Mrs. Bloomquist? But you have to say that warmly and with humor, or it's just mean. It really doesn't matter. They all do exactly the same thing. But once you've put into words what is happening, this shines a big awkward spotlight on the inappropriate awkward action that will otherwise continue to go on forever. To switch metaphors, it kind of puts up that fence for you. And I felt I needed to do this in my 20s. I was, after all, trying to make meeting about God. You know, instead of being 100% about these people and their need for me to respect their Christian group efforts and to have the right hair and pants and jargon. And they weren't letting me do that at all. One would almost think they wanted it to be about them and their imposing their will upon everyone. So I started getting firm with them whenever they overstepped my boundaries in all those ways that my church culture had always taught me were perfectly normal, but which someone like Curry would have been shocked and outraged by. Because I could discern that the social stuff was interfering with my relationship with God and my trying to give him his proper place in these things. 
It's all well and good to claim that we don't follow rules, but instead have a relationship with Jesus. But if you then socially shame and punish and ostracize people who break them, tends to belie that claim. So I started getting firm, blunt even, and this brought me some breathing room. was going to say living room, but decided that was too Hitlerian. Now, it takes very special people to stick to their guns and keep right on being inappropriate, despite it being made clear to them that they are intruding in an inappropriate way. You're still going to find people who will do that, though. A common response by a truly dogged intruder is, I'm just trying to encourage you to attend church. They're always just saying and just trying to do inappropriate things. You can ask them to just knock it off. Obviously, simply letting them know that in reality, you do not feel encouraged by their ineffectual misguided efforts will help here. If you comment only on what's actually really happening at your end, they can't really disagree and say that no, you do feel encouraged. They can always resort to that old chestnut, you should feel encouraged. Why wouldn't you feel encouraged? Do you have a guilty conscience? But if you keep bringing the conversation back to the awkward actual and keeping it out of the purely idealistic and imaginary, this move doesn't work for them either. I'm just trying to show I care. Do they? Do you feel cared about or scolded? Perhaps they could use some frank feedback as to how they're doing at making you feel cared about. Anne has been taking nonviolent communication courses. What she does is, when her mom emails her and goes on about sometimes our feelings can lead us away from the Lord and astray into paths of independence without our quite knowing it, taking roads down which blessings surely cannot follow, Anne reads behind all of this to the parental concern she feels is truly there, and she answers that instead of the surface doubt, suspicion, accusations, or disparaging of her character and life choices. Anne says things more like, Are you worried for me? Do you want me to know God better? Are you scared I'm not taking a life path that's going to make me happy in the long run? Stuff that addresses the concern and the relationship. Stuff that tempts her parents to express affection rather than just the dread and prophecies of doom. Sounds pretty smart. Driving your own car. I found my church culture had a lot of passwords they used to kind of test to see if you were us or them. So when I met someone's gay brother-in-law, the culture-correct expected answer to the question, what do you think of James, was always and only to be that I was concerned, mildly disgusted, and troubled by his homosexuality, even though he wasn't pursuing the lifestyle. If I said he was great on the piano and drew amusing pictures, that was the wrong answer. I've mentioned how when people asked if I didn't agree that it was terribly nice to be out Lord's Day morning to the only correct church to attend, that the only culture-correct expected response was, of course, yes, so nice, not, it certainly seems to be important to you that the other churches be wrong. Why is that? Now, a very good question might be raised at this point. What's wrong with people intruding on your life? Why not just let them? Where's the real harm, practically speaking? Well, it's not natural. By that I mean that there's natural and there is what is contrary to nature. Adults being parented and treated as if they were still children isn't any more natural than breastfeeding them when they're 35. It slows down their maturation both by not letting them mature and also by making them not need to mature. Is unnatural bad? Think of a mother who wanted to come along on her daughter's honeymoon to supervise, instruct, and advise in the bedroom. Gross? Unnatural? Well, unnatural is bad, 
Also, would said theoretical mother-in-law be helping or hurting the success of that marriage? Is the path of wisdom to humor her or to put up a boundary, to shut the bedroom door and lock it? I don't think it's any different with the day-to-day life of a young adult. It would take a pretty special family to not put up a firm boundary to any mother who wanted to go along on her child's honeymoon. But how far back in time would you need to go before you would find a problem? How long ago would you see boundaries that were simply not put up regarding how she insisted on micromanaging and generally backseat driving her daughter's life? Courtship? Moving out? Post-secondary? First job? Thing is, if you're not letting your adult offspring live their own lives, you're stealing something from them which was given to them by God himself. One time when I was 25, I was thinking upon a very brethren concept, the idea that one day I would stand before God and have to give an account of all my life choices. What kind of a life was I living? What kinds of choices was I making? What did it all add up to and where was it headed? A realization hit me during this train of thought. This train traveled as I drove a 73 Ford Granada down Beckwith Street to work. God might simply not accept the excuse that most of my decisions were really just me buckling to pressure from my church culture. He might expect me to justify them, just as if I'd thought about them myself and made them all on purpose, by myself. He might hold me accountable for my own life. Terrifying. Because a lot of these life decisions didn't make a whole lot of sense, not in that decade, in that life. I wasn't in any real sense driving my own car, myself, in my adult life. I was sitting in the back seat letting others drive it for me, deciding where to turn left, when to start braking, and even when it was time for an oil change. With this frightening thought came another. I was absolutely going to have to snatch back my adult life from the clutching fingers of the geritocracy that was my church culture. I was going to have to do what I thought was best, what I really thought God wanted. I might even need to do it with a certain amount of disregard for their expectations as to what a godly Christian life, which is honoring to the Lord and a good testimony to this world, look like. And they weren't going to like it. I wasn't wrong. Three years later, they'd tossed me out on my butt, ecclesiastically speaking. I then stood as a lesson to the unwary. Kids looking on got the message, all right. You had to love Big Brother, otherwise you'd be vaporized like I'd been. So fall into line. No thought crime, no face crime, no visits to where the proles live, or you'd become, like me, an unperson, deleted from Brethren history, not allowed to procreate. It may sound like I exaggerate, but I remember adults talking sadly or smugly about who had lost their children. And they didn't mean the children had died. It meant they weren't attending meeting. Bob Bob sure used to have have a lot lot to say to us, but his mouth shut shut now that he's he's lost all three of his kids. They don't even stop touring around preaching nowadays when that happens. They used to have to. I really do believe that independent thought confidence, and other virtues were precisely what were making me stand out in the eyes of the elders, which made me fall under the glassy gaze of their ecclesiastical sniperscopes. I sure wasn't perfect, but as time went by, it became increasingly obvious that they forgave any number of people for any number of vices, but certain virtues never went unpunished. You could sin and still be us. You could not grow and stay the same. Clearly, you were expected to fight growth as it was change. You were to keep things old for the sake of the old folks. Where this boundaries thing got messy was when things were perhaps a bit codependent. 
I'm no expert on the subject, but what I mean by the word is that many of the people who intruded most thoughtlessly, shamelessly, and insidiously in my life were people who did something or some things for me, so felt like I owed them special leeway. Some people changed the oil in my car for me free of charge or mended my clothes or gave me free, free-range eggs or hot casseroles or things like that. But then they tended to comment on, inquire into, and interfere in things I really didn't need them involved in. And then I felt incredibly guilty trying to reinforce those boundaries that would have kept them out of my business. I owed them something, so I felt guilty. Owing money is an even worse situation. Hearing a few of them actually put into plain words the fact that I owed them, and therefore that they felt perfectly entitled to meddle in my life, helped me to feel less guilty. Some people intruded by asking for information or generally snooping, others by sharing my information with anyone who would listen. Others continually expressed concern over any of my decisions that struck them as odd or unexpected, often before I'd even quite finished making them. Others spoke up for me and made decisions that affected me without my even being involved. I needed say over my life. I needed privacy. If I were to sing a touching song about surrendering all of my life to God, it would have needed a verse about having to wrestle a horde of grabby relatives and meeting people for it in the first place before I could even lay a finger on my own life to surrender it to him. I felt a huge amount of stress, dejection, and anxiety over the enormous pressure weighing down on me to never screw anything up, but even more importantly, never do anything unexpected. I felt no sense of adult freedom at all, and it was killing me. I felt like I absolutely had to do a complicated figure skating routine in the Olympics with everyone watching. I had to land every jump and do every twirl, even though I was lying bleeding and bruised and broken in an alleyway, beaten and battered by the everything of everyone. A great big wall, Pink Floyd style, behind which one hides in pain, isolated and alone, isn't the ideal when it comes to healthy boundaries. That's not what I'm recommending. It's more like the expression, good fences make good neighbors. You want them over for a barbecue, and maybe you want to swim in their pool, but your fence needs a locking gate. You need those fences up, or their dog will crap all across your patio, and your cat might eat their cockatiel. And they need to allow you to have curtains over your windows so you can use the toilet in peace. To say that I figured out and navigated all of this with panache in my mid-twenties would be what is generally called a lie. But I got it worked out eventually. I had to be unafraid to cause a fuss if someone was going to walk roughshod over boundaries that mattered to me. I had to not overreact or get angry. I had to be willing to make things slightly socially awkward in order to avoid endless awkwardness for the rest of my life. I needed to make sure in my adult life that I had not trained people to feel very free to intrude on what was supposed to be about God and me alone. Really, another big part of the road to success for me in this one was I had to become self-sufficient. I had to get to a place where I really didn't need anyone for anything, which took a good while. This meant I could help instead of being helpless all the time, and that when someone did me a favor or helped me in return, it just made things in my life more convenient rather than making them actually possible. Structure The first thing I had to do was gently, firmly push away all the people who were trying to hold me to a structured lifestyle I had never agreed to. It wasn't easy. Doom was prophesied from all quarters. The next thing I had to do was ensure that my life had a structure of some kind. 
some people don't do this and end up lying around a lot, not regularly working, not eating, sleeping, and showering, and so on very well. Others end up doing nothing but work and not eating, sleeping, and recreating themselves very well. You need some structure, but you need to make it yourself. So, for example, a budget is good. The whole 80-20 rule. However small or large each paycheck, put 20% of it in savings and spend the 80%. But having your parents make a budget for you and check up on you paycheck by paycheck to see if you're adhering to it is humiliating and not very adult. Yet, a budget is good. Makes sense to come up with one, often grabbing a disinterested third party to help you. Computers make numbers add and subtract themselves, which is good for number numbskulls like me. And payment schedules and so on can be written on calendars or typed into computers. I learned that if I couldn't see it, it didn't seem real to me. So a calendar on the wall was always there, reminding me. The thing about a budget is, you start to see things that you need that you would at first not think to budget for. You learn you have to budget for fun. Otherwise, either you don't have any, or you don't know how much you can spend on it and go overboard. So plan on funding a bit of it. Sleep is important, too, it turns out. I worked rotating shifts in my 20s, so that was a bit of a train wreck. But I quickly learned that it was actually harder to work when I hadn't slept than if I hadn't eaten. Your sanity starts to go really quickly. So I worked out sleep routines. Nowadays, we know that sleep routines are very light-related, as to your brain knowing to sleep. And this is a problem for people who need to work nights. And for people whose wind-down sleep routine involves lit-up screens of various kinds. Of course, it's possible to fall asleep in front of a TV, especially if you're not playing video games, but that screen is keeping you up far longer than your brain would otherwise stay awake given some other non-light-related cue to sleep. Ebooks are a bit of a problem in this regard, too, now that they light up. I had to buy thick curtains and develop winding-down routines. Had to make sure I'd already taken some time and done my thinking so it wasn't all waiting for me when it was time to sleep. Food is important. In our culture, it's almost inevitable that we will be fat by 25. It's not our fault that so much inexpensive fat and sugar-laced stuff is available on almost every corner. The solution for me was to make up almost arbitrary-seeming rules. I'd grown up with rules, so I made some. No more than one pop a day. And only if it was Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. Ice cream? Yes, but only once per month. Chocolate? Sure, but only if I'd just eaten a meal. Chips? Okay, but I had to be standing to eat them. Dessert? Only if I'd eaten two kinds of vegetables that meal. Odd stuff that made it less convenient to be dumb. As to exercise, I had to learn to get along with my body. Had to learn not to use exercise to punish it because I hated it. Had to learn to feel energy needing to get out. Had to feel a hunger for movement that was natural as a hunger for food or sleep. My friend Mark encouraged me, though we didn't keep the Sabbath, to make the work week stop abruptly before supper on Friday. Once I got a Monday to Friday job, of course. I needed to really feel that I was done for the week. A big answer to stress problems is to always be able to look forward to a stop time. You need to be able to trust in things stopping every week. Structure and rules didn't go away from me, but I'd taken the wheel. After all, I would one day give account of my life to God, so it had to become my life. I make rules for myself all the time. No pop until the weekend. If I want to skip the gym after school, I have to do laps up and down the stairwell before I go home. Stuff like that, designed to try to add some structure to my life, myself, for my own reasons. They are not morally correct or incorrect. They are just structure and nothing else. 
It's good to keep them, but not wrong to break them. I make them up, and I keep them, or change them, or break them, and there's no smugness or shame in any of it. It's just living. It's not about being a good person. I feel free to make structures for myself, to set limits and make little rules, while ignoring the fearful, fun-hating system I was raised in. I read the Bible, and I can't believe how little of it is about limits. And that changes everything. The Bible? It's not the fun police. It's actually downright inspiring. Often makes me feel things other than fear, panicked resolve to try harder, and shame when I read it now.